I want to invite you to grab your Bible and open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 18. This morning we are diving into two chapters. That's a lot. A lot's happening. Two chapters, chapters 18 and 19. And this is a key moment in the storyline of the Old Testament. For the first time, Saul and David are coming together. And here in just a couple of pages, we're going to see the rise of David and the fall of Saul. But church, this is not a history lesson. Uh, This is an invitation. I want to invite us to to get to know Saul and David. Invite us into the text and, and understand how they think. Know where they come from. Why they do what they do. And here's my goal. There's a lot that's happening in two chapters. Here's my goal. I want for us to see that we have a little bit of Saul and David in us as well. First thing we know about Saul, Saul was a somebody. Saul had a reputation. The people said there is no one like him. Saul stood out. The Bible says he he was tall. He was a head taller than anyone else. And Israel loved Saul because on the outside, Saul looked, he looked like a king. I mean, he had the image of a king But on the inside, Saul, oh, he is struggling. Saul was a somebody. David was a nobody. He came from a poor family, a dusty little farm town. He wasn't tall. He didn't stand out. David is forgettable. Like if you lived in the farm next door to David, you probably didn't even know his name. David was the the youngest, the least of his eight brothers. He wasn't even on the radar of his own father, Jesse. When when Samuel came to to Jesse's house in Bethlehem to anoint the next king, and and Jesse, he he lines up his his sons, and Samuel goes through, nope, 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 nope. Like, like, Jesse, do you have any more sons? Oh, yeah. David, he's out with the sheep. Nobody wanted to be a shepherd. Nobody. Like, herding sheep, this is dirty, Lonely, boring, long hours, low pay. Like watching sheep always fell to the youngest, the least distinguished son. Even in his own family, David drew the short straw. See, I'm showing us that that David and Saul are are total opposites. Saul is is somewhere around 55 years old. David is is like 15, maybe 20. That means that, that Saul has been king for 25 years. He's been king longer than David's even been alive. Saul is a somebody. David, David's a nobody. Until now. Chapter 17, David just chucks a rock at the forehead of Goliath, drops Goliath, runs after him, picks up his sword, just whack, just chops off his head. He's holding now, talking to Saul, holding the ugly head of Goliath. And everyone is thinking like, who is this guy? We know Saul. Saul is the first king of Israel. We're going to meet two of his, his kids. We're going to meet Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan is the prince. He is the, the next in line, the first in line to inherit the throne and soon to, soon to be like the best friend of David. We're going to meet Saul's daughter, Michael, the princess, soon to be the wife of David. 
And then there's Samuel, and we know Samuel. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on Samuel this morning in chapter 19, but Samuel is the spiritual leader. He is the older, the wiser, the, the faithful prophet that God has been speaking through anointing King Saul and now anointing David. Let's get to know a little bit more about Jonathan. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse one. As soon as he, David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Our, our world recently has, has tried to twist this. It tried to, to twist this relationship with Jonathan and with David, trying to imply, trying to suggest something that it's not. If you had just seen what happened, like David still has blood splatter on his boots. Like if you had seen what just happened, like you would love David too. Like he just killed Goliath. The whole theme of chapter 18 and 19, the whole point is everyone loves David. Everyone except Saul. The fact is that David loves women. Like, like, in fact, too much. Like, that, that becomes his downfall later on. Our world has tried to twist this, tried to distort this, implying something that's not. And, and Jonathan is the prince. He's the next in line to inherit the throne. Uh, but he's not threatened. He's, he's not insecure like Saul is. He loves David. This word love, this, this, is, not like a, this is not a romantic love. It says Jonathan loves David. This, this is a, a, a like military love love. This, this is a, an alliance. This is an allegiance, a, a, a bond. This is a treaty. This is like military. You go into war, into battle with your brothers. Like, I have your back. You have my back. Like, we are fighting for the same team. Like, we are together. This is like hoorah kind of love. Hey, guys, it's okay to love other men. Like, 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 you don't have to talk on the phone. Like, you, you don't have to go on walks in the park. But what this is saying is, is David had a man in his life, a man who would fight with him, a, a man who would stand with him, stand in the gap, who would watch his blind spots, speaking into his, his life, a man who was faithful. Men, do you have a guy like that in your life? Men, it's okay to love other men. When David was at his best, he was surrounded by mighty men. When David was at his worst, he was alone by himself. Look at verse three. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan and David, they, they cut a covenant together. They, they sacrificed an animal. They, they cut the animal in half, laying, laying aside the two parts of the animal, and then they walk in between the animal, signifying if, if we're to break our relationship, break our friendship, if we break this covenant, let it be done to us as this animal. Hey guys, you have nine months before the start of deer season. Like, like, that's enough time to recruit some mighty men into your life and then go and cut a covenant. Like, that's application, isn't it? Verse four, and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. See, David is taking off his robe. This isn't sensual. Like, this is a symbol. This is a symbol of, of I am handing over everything all of my future rights. I am dethroning myself. 
I am handing over my inheritance, everything that I am entitled to, and David, I am giving it to you. You be the king. He loves him. He's not threatened. He's not insecure like Saul. He loves David. Verse five, and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all of the people. Everyone loves David. Also the the sight of even Saul's servants. As they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the, the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul. Who? Who did the ladies come out to meet? Saul. With tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. We got got to picture this moment. The men are coming home from war and they won. For 40 days, twice a day, Goliath is, is defying Israel, mocking Israel, taunting Israel. David shows up and drops him. If Goliath would have won, the deal was all of Israel would now be a slave to the Philistines. But David won. This means you are not a slave to the Philistines and now your husband, your brother, your son, your father is coming home. Like imagine this, this this is a homecoming. I mean, this is a party. This is a victory parade, 20 miles. That's that's Indianapolis to uh, Danville, like 20 miles, city after city after city. The women are coming out and they're celebrating. They're there to meet Saul. Verse seven, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Ooh. And Saul was very angry. The word he's, he's burning within. Furious, burning. And this saying displeased him. <laughs> this word displeased, he He's not well. Literally, his his stomach is turning. Saul is nauseous. He is so upset. He is so worked up. He is sick. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. To me, they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. David from the youngest, the littlest of eight brothers, watching the sheep to killing Goliath, the 10-foot-tall champion. Jonathan the prince hands over his, his future rights, dethroning himself, saying, David, you be the king. Women sing about him. I mean, every boy in the country wants to be him. Can't you just imagine the nine-year-olds like running around with slingshots now, like, like picking off pop cans, practicing, wanting to be like David, like city after city after city. Everyone loves David. Everyone except Saul. What's his problem? Like, like what's the deal with Saul? Saul is insecure. I would say the root issue for Saul is he is insecure and this is driving him mad. In fact, this isn't new. Saul has always been insecure. Chapter 10, this is the moment when when Israel is crowning Saul as the king, the first king of Israel. This is the coronation. 
and Saul, he's nowhere to be seen. People are asking, like, where, where is Saul? Nobody can find him. He's, he's hiding in the baggage room. He's to be crowned the king, and he's hiding in storage. Samuel goes in, he gives him a pep talk, and he says, Saul, like, the Lord chose you. Like, you're anointed. Like, there is no one like you. Saul comes out, and at least for the moment, the, the people shout, long live the king. But then quickly, 1 Samuel 15, again, Samuel confronts Saul. In this conversation, Samuel looks Saul just square in the eyes, and he tells him, Saul, though you are little in your eyes, are you not the king? Saul, you're, you are taller than anyone around here. Like, the Lord has chose you. He has anointed you. He has appointed you. Like, but you're little in your eyes. Saul should be celebrating. They came out to see him, but Saul is comparing. Comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison will, will rob you, will steal you of every ounce of joy that you have. And I think there's probably more Saul in us than we want to admit. We do this, right? We, we compare ourselves. We stack ourselves up. We measure ourselves against one another. Even from a young age, you quickly learn how to keep score. We play this comparison game. Why? Why do we do this? Because like Saul, we are insecure creatures. See, Saul is consumed with his image. That's what's most important for him, his, his image. And the reason he is now jealous and furious is, is because he wants to elevate his own image. He, he wants to maintain, he wants to control how people view him. He, he wants to project a certain sort of image for how he wants people to see him and to know him. Church, I want to challenge us in the way that, that we think of our image. I want to ask us to, to rethink our image this morning. See, the reason that we are insecure with our image is, is because our image, it doesn't belong to us. It never has. Our image is not ours, and, and so we try to steal back. We, we try to recreate our own self-image. We try to maintain and manufacture keeping up an image. It's exhausting. It's unsatisfying. It doesn't work. Why? Because our image is not ours to start with. Our image doesn't belong to us. See, we are created in the image of God. And the image of God is not a, a quality that we possess. It is a condition for how we should live. The image of God is not a quality, an attribute, something that we possess. It's a condition for how we are to live. And Saul is not living up to the condition. He is not living up to be like God, created in the image of God. Verse 10 the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, the harp. And, and as he did day by day, Saul had a spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. 
Like, like harp in David's hand, harpoon in Saul's hand. He throws it. David evades him twice. Like, I still want to know how that happened. Twice. Like, is this the same day? Same sitting? Like, did David, like, duck and Saul reloaded? Like, was this over a couple weeks? Like, twice he tries to pin David against the wall. Verse 12, look at this. But, but Saul was afraid of David. What? Like, shouldn't that be the other way around? Like, shouldn't David be afraid of Saul? Why? Verse 12. Saul was afraid of David. Why? Because the Lord was with him. Ooh, underline that. The Lord is with him, but had departed from Saul. Why did David rise? Because the Lord was with him. Why did, fall Saul, why did Saul fall? Because the Lord had left him. Both the rise of David, the fall of Saul are directly tied to the presence of the Lord. Look at verse 13. So, so Saul removed him. He couldn't take it. Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand and he went out and came in before all of the people. And David had success in all of his undertakings. Why? For the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. You see this insecurity just bubbling up every time. But all of Israel and Judah, everyone loved David. For he went out and came in before them. What's happening here is, is David's having, having success, and so Saul promotes David. But underneath this, Saul is, is just trying to strategically position David. This is a promotion. This is a death sentence. Saul is just trying to put David on the front lines, hoping he's going to get picked off in battle, leading the troops. Does this sound a little familiar with David? If you know the story years later, David and, and his mighty men, his friend Uriah the Hittite, David does the same exact thing, taking Uriah, putting him to the front lines of the troop, hoping Uriah gets picked off in battle. Isn't it interesting when people do something to hurt us and we hold on to that and years later, we do the same exact thing to hurt someone else. Verse 17, Saul said to David, here's my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. He doesn't care about that. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but the hand of the Philistines be against him. Saul's already made the same deal. Whoever killed Goliath was supposed to receive the oldest daughter. This is the same deal. Saul is dangling his daughter like this prize. Same deal, same daughter, and now even same man, David, a second time. Verse 18, and David said to Saul, look at this, the first time David speaks, David said to Saul, who am I? Who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that, that I should be son-in-law to the king? I'm a nobody. I mean, look at me. Like, I haven't showered in a month. Like, this is genuine burlap. Like, this, this is hand-me-downs from my brothers. This is grass-stained. I smell like sheep. I don't belong in the royal family. Like, I'm the lowest in my family. Who, who am I to be the son-in-law to the king? 
verse 19. But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, guess what? She was given to Adriel, the Meholothite, for his wife. Again, Saul breaks his promise again to David. Verse 20, now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. And they told Saul, and this this thing pleased him, Saul thought, let me give her to him that she may be a snare, like a a trap for him, that, that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son in law. It's, it's so interesting. If you, you keep reading, there's, there's no response. David's just been invited to be the son-in-law of the king and he doesn't even answer Saul. And we're gonna see the servants have to now go and, and start whispering, start, start buttering up, flattering David. I think David probably said no. There's insecurity in Saul. I think there's also insecurity in David. I think there's a little bit of David in us too. David wasn't afraid to fight Goliath, but his insecurity runs deeper. It's personal. He's just a shepherd. He's a poor farm kid. Like he's the youngest, the smallest, like he's been forgotten his whole life. He's been looked down upon like, David doesn't fit the royal family. It's one thing to play the harp for the king, to, to lead the army for the king, really just to be a servant to the king, but, but marry the princess? Be the son-in-law? I think doubt begins creeping in David's mind. You don't belong. You're not good enough. You don't have what it takes. You're a nobody. You're a shepherd. Are you all that you are as a shepherd? All you've ever been, all that you will ever amount to be is a shepherd. Insecurity comes in different ways. Saul gets mad. He throws things. He controls people. He compares. He manipulates. He uses people. David shrinks back. Questions. Doubts. Who are you like? Are you more like Saul? Or are you more like David? We live in an insecure world. Like from the top to the bottom. Insecurity is, is everywhere. But church, imagine. What would it be like if we cared less about our image and more about reflecting God's image? What would it look like if we cared less about creating and maintaining our self-image and we were more about God's image? May we be a church like that. Image matters. The question is whose image? Verse 22, and and Saul commanded his servants, uh, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you. No, he doesn't. And his servants love you, just buttering him up, buttering him up. Now become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David, just whispering these words. And David said, wait, wait, wait. 
does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and have no reputation. He asked the question, who am I? He answers it. I'm a poor man. I have no reputation. Who am I? I don't fit the royal family. Verse 25, and Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price. Like, I know you're poor. I know you have little means. I know your family. I know you come from nothing. That's okay. Here's the deal. Here's how you, you buy into the family. Here's the condition. A hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Because if one giant couldn't do it, certainly a hundred Philistines could do it. And when Saul's uh, servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. He can do that. So before time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines, not 100, 200 of the Philistines, which were, uh, and, 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 and David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And, gave, and Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. When I first asked my father-in-law to marry his daughter, Krista, like, I got off so easy I didn't have to kill anybody. Like we met at Cracker Barrel. Like we were there for 40 minutes. We both ordered waters and then he left the tip. Like the most awkward part of the conversation is trying to convince the waitress to leave a tip for water. You wanna be my, you wanna be my son-in-law? You wanna marry my daughter? Kill the 10 foot tall giant? Check. Okay, now go kill a hundred Philistines. Like I want proof, I want revenge, and I wanna make a statement. David comes back with 200. He has proof, he has revenge, and he just made a statement. Verse 28, but when Saul saw and knew the Lord was with David. Third time we've read that, the Lord is with David. And that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. And then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all of the servants of Saul. So that his name was highly esteemed. This is the rise of David, the fall of Saul. And Even Saul knows exactly what's going on here. The Lord is with David. If I had to summarize this chapter just in in one sentence, one idea, I'd say this. It's, It's better to be a nobody with God than a somebody without God. David's a nobody. Oh, but he's with God. Saul was a somebody, or at least he desperately tried to be a somebody. He's without God. Church, this isn't just like a middle school thing. Like this is a life thing. This is an us thing. That it is better to be a nobody with God than a somebody without God. 
chapter 19, verse one. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and, and all the servants that they should kill David. First time his, his thoughts are now public. And Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. He loved David. Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Like, therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. Like, they have this covenant. He's got his back. He's there for him. Verse four, and Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you, because his deeds have brought you good to you. For he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord, the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Jonathan called David and Jonathan reported to him all of these things and Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as before. I don't think this is about David fully trusting Saul. This is about David trusting the Lord. This is about David trusting the word of God spoken through Samuel the prophet, anointing David to be king because right now he's still not yet king. And so David knows, go back to Saul? Lord, I trust you. I'm not gonna lean into my own life experience. That doesn't even make sense. Like, Lord, I am going to stand on your word. I am going to, by faith, trust what you have spoken, knowing it's true. I'm gonna go back. It doesn't make sense, but Lord, I trust you. He goes back to Saul. Verse eight, and there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so they fled before him. And then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand. Like, you know where this is going. And David was playing the lyre. Like, you know where this is going. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul a third time so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. I, it's so interesting David has eluded Saul three times. How many times have we read that the Lord is with David? Three times. Verse 11, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. And Michael took an image. The NIV has the word idol. It's really the same thing. T takes an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. What is the thing that Saul cares most about in life? his image. 
What does his daughter tuck in the bed hiding under the covers? An image. See, back in the Bible, um, back in the Bible times, kings would, would cast statues of themselves. And the statue was, wasn't like an idol that people would bow down to to worship. The, the king would cast these statues, life-size statues of themselves, and then scatter these statues all across the kingdom as a visual representation, as a reminder, so that when the people, when the people saw the statue, they are reminded of the king. That your purpose in life is to serve the king. Don't forget it. And when you see that statue, you are about the kingdom. Genesis 1. When God created Adam and Eve, mankind, he made them in his own image. It's the same word that we, we are cast as statues, as image bearers of God. That God has scattered us across his kingdom. And that means when people look at us, like our purpose, the reason we exist, why we're here is to reflect, is to represent the image of God. That we are here as God's image bearers to point people back to the Lord. So instead of being insecure with our image, no, no, no. We can have full confidence the reason we exist, who we are created to be. It's not to create our own image, our self-image. No, we can't steal anything back. That doesn't belong to us. That we are here to portray, to represent the image of God. When people see us, they see the presence of God. Not perfectly, but we are pointing them to the creator See, that's why image matters, but our image is not about us. Church, that we are to be living, breathing, walking around statues on the west side of Indianapolis, pointing people, reflecting God's presence here in this place. The world is watching and we are pointing them to the one. That's what it means to be in the image of God. The image of God is not a quality that we possess. It is a condition for how we are called to live. That we are made as the image bearers of God. I love this. This is so funny. Because what does Saul's daughter do? She tucks a statue of her dad in the bed. She makes her dad's statue, his image, a dummy. Look at verse 14. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, oh, he's sick. Like, that's the oldest trick in the book. Like, the messengers come to the door, and oh, David can't come to the door right now. Like, he's sick in bed. Verse 15, and Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him, uh, bring him up uh, to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its head. Can you imagine the look on Saul's face when he rips off those sheets and he sees his image, a dummy looking back at him? Saul said to Michael, verse 17, why have you deceived me? And let my enemy go so he has escaped. And Michael answered Saul. He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? The plan works. 
David jumps out the window, he escapes. But here, Michael adds something. We don't know what the conversation was with David and Michael. Maybe he said this, maybe he didn't say this. But David, uh, but Michael told her father, David threatened me. He said he was gonna kill me. We, we know that's a lie. That wasn't David's intent, but that's what was said. It's interesting, from this point on, their marriage is not the same. From this point on, Michael and David's, their marriage is never the same. It does not recover. Look at verse 18. And David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah, and he told him all that Saul had done. And, and he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. Naoth is like this outpost, this like camp. People would go there, prophets and priests, to pray and to worship. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. So Saul sends more messengers. Same thing happens, they prophesy. So Saul third time sends more messengers. The same thing happens again, they prophesy. Verse 22, so he himself, so Saul went to Ramah. I mean, you want it done right, do it yourself, right? So Saul goes to Ramah, verse 23, he went to Naoth and Ramah and the spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah and he too stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Samuel also among the prophets? Just like Jonathan, who takes off his robe, dethrones himself, so the Lord strips Saul of his robe, dropping him on his face on the ground. Saul's insecurity drove him mad. It results in him looking like a fool. And the rumors start, is Saul among the prophets? Meaning is, is, is Saul really, like they are questioning his kingship. Is Saul really the king? The rumors start. Church, 3,000 years later today, for us, this, this isn't so much about David. This isn't a history lesson. This is an invitation. This isn't about David. This is about the son of David, Jesus. See, David was invited to be the son-in-law of the king. We are invited to be the sons and the daughters of the king of kings. There's two chapters I want to end with, with two challenges. Hey, men, I want to challenge you to be like Jonathan, the prince. Give up your throne. Like, like, take off your robe, transfer your allegiance, transfer your alliance to Jesus. Step aside. Jesus has cut a covenant for us, a faithful, a loyal, and so in our obedience, we honor that covenant that we love him. Hoorah kind of love. Ladies, I want to challenge you to be like Michael, the princess. Man, she loved David, loved Jesus. Like more than anything, more than anyone, like clean house, love 
Jesus. She pursued him. She stood up for him. She was fierce. She was faithful. She was loyal. Outside of the Song of Solomon, this is the only place in scripture we see it say that a woman loved a man. And it says that several times, proving the point that Michael is is a shadow pointing to us 3,000 years later what our response today should be to love the son of David, Jesus. Philippians chapter two. We are called to have this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, though he was God, though he was the the image of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by taking the, the likeness, the image of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, human image. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, 3,000 years later, Jonathan and Michael, they are pointing us to Jesus. So Lord, Lord, we don't want to just hear this. Lord, we we don't want to just read this. God, you, you invite us to believe this. Lord, that that by faith, Lord, that we can turn from our own self-image, that we can turn from ourselves in repentance, Lord, that we can turn to you. Lord, the, the righteous one who died for the unrighteous. That you can reconcile and restore our, our lost relationship. So that your perfect righteousness covers us. Lord, and that means when when God the Father looks upon us, he does not see our sin. He sees the righteousness of his son covering us. So Lord, we are invited by faith to believe, to turn, to trust, in full obedience, and full confidence, God, you, your son, Jesus. Lord, following you was never meant to be easy. Lord, you call us to step out in faith. Lord, you call us to step out amongst the fears, amongst the insecurities. Lord, to be your witness, to be your image bearers, reflecting, representing you. Lord, help us do that. Jesus, we need you. We need you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.